And the first from the Denver Film Festival 2016. I'm your host, John X. Thanks for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. We are in Denver Film Festival. That's right, DFF 39. I loved doing this last year, and I'm even more excited to do it this year. Why? Like the first time you do something, you're kind of feeling your way through it. You don't know exactly what to expect, you don't know what you're doing, and uh, you're just sort of groping your way through it. It's the second year. I got in touch with Neil Trulio. He was on my show. He's the press contact that I work with at Denver Film Festival, and he's terrific. Just an unbelievably hardworking, tremendous guy. You should check out his episode. I have a tab on the website, johnofalltrades.us, that has all of the interviews from last year. So I did five from Denver Film Fest 38, and then one with Neil a couple of months later, where we talk about what it's like to actually work for one of these festivals. And if you listen to that episode with Neil, he's just an incredibly warm, hardworking, very thoughtful, very caring dude. He's a joy to work with. So this year, I actually worked with him a little bit more. Last year, I let him just sort of pitch me ideas of who I should talk to. This year, I kind of looked at the schedule. I looked at who was going to be there. And I said to him, I'm like, all right, we're going to identify these potential guests together and we're going to put together a great slate of shows. So this year, I'm doing four from the Denver Film Festival. You're getting one this week, the week of November 7th. You're getting two next week, the week of November 14th. And then one more the week of November 21st. And I think that's the right number. What we have is a nice sampling of the type of thing that you get at the Denver Film Fest. So without giving too much away, I, I've put it on Facebook. I'm going to point you to there. So go to Facebook. Look up J-O-A-T pod. It's facebook.com slash J-O-A-T pod. It's the only place to find episode previews of the John of All Trades podcast. But I've put a listing of the four episodes that I'm going to do. And the one coming the week of November 21st is one I'm very, very excited for. Because it's someone from one of my all-time favorite TV shows. I'm going to do my best not to ask him about it too much. But, uh, I mean, you can bet your ass it's going to come up because... It's only my favorite show. But we've got two great films coming next week. This week's episode, though, let's get to this one. I'm talking with Jeff Grace. And Jeff Grace is the director of Folk Hero and Funny Guy. He's also the writer. Now, originally, I was going to talk to the star of the film, Alex Karpovsky. And you may know Alex Karpovsky. He was in uh, Inside Lewin Davis. He was in Hail Caesar. He's on the TV show Girls. He plays Ray on the TV show Girls which is a pretty big deal. I mean, his career is really on the ascent. He's doing great things. And he's terrific in the film that's at the Denver Film Fest. Folk hero and funny guy. And he plays the funny guy. And for whatever reason, uh, he couldn't make the interview. So pinch hitting for him was the director, Jeff Grace. Now, I was really, really pleased with the way this episode went. This was a fantastic interview that we sort of did, um, call it last minute, you know? I, I was fully prepped to talk to Alex Karpovsky. I found out Jeff Grace was in town. And so I prepped a little bit. I, I thought of some things I would want to ask him as an indie film director, as the director of a comedy, as the director of a road movie. When you do indie film, you're working on a very tight shoestring budget. And to me, it seems like, and you'll hear me ask him this in the episode, it seems like the hardest type of movie to do would be a road movie. Just because you have such a sense of motion, you have so many different setups, you, the characters have to keep moving. Whereas you think about, when I think of indie films, you know, I think of 20 plus years ago, the movie Clerks, which took place in, almost entirely inside a convenience store with no natural light in it. I mean, that is about as bare bones as you can get as far as setups. And Jeff is really good enough to give me some insight as to what it's like to film and do a road movie on a very tight budget. Now, this episode is interesting for a number of reasons because we talk about a lot of issues that come with filmmaking. And it's everything from what you have to do on the front end, whether it's hiring a lawyer, getting insured, starting your LLC. There's all this business stuff that you have to do when you want to make a film 
that you may not think of when you're, say, in film school or you have designs on making a movie. There's like a lot of business stuff that you have to do. We talk about that. It's fantastic. We also end up talking about piracy and how they work to combat piracy and about how piracy negatively impacted his previous movie. I mean, it's amazing. You think piracy, you go, ah, it's victimless, whatever, you know, all the fat cats out there in Hollywood. I, you know, you take a few shekels off of them, no big deal. But the thing is, he tells a story about piracy negatively impacting his previous film. So how did he combat that? That's a really interesting anecdote, too. And what you get from this chat is just, I mean, this is another guy who took the leap. I mean, that is a theme of this show. It's the leap. If you see the movie Folk Hero and Funny Guy, which I encourage you to do, they're working on their distribution deal. I hope they get it. This is a movie that deserves an audience. I gush a little bit during the interview about how much I like it, and I'm not kidding. Right from the get-go, I dug this movie immediately. It, it sort of has a vibe and a universe where you go, okay, I know these characters, I identify with these characters, and there's just a vibe here that I really, I, I enjoy hanging out with these people. I, I hope they're incredibly successful in getting this movie out. Alex Karpovsky is wonderful in it. Wyatt Russell, who you may remember as Zook from uh, 22 Jump Street, and he was so freaking funny in that movie. He's great in this movie, too. There's music. It's a road movie. It's funny. It's warm. It's just tremendous. So I'm happy that this movie is kicking off my coverage of the Denver Film Festival. I'd also like to thank Neil Trulio for hooking me up with these interviews and getting everything scheduled. I'll have a tab on the John of All Trades website with all the Denver Film Fest 39 interviews. Go out, check out 38. 38 was a much different year. It was a much different slate of movies. This year, uh, we're changing it up a bit, and, uh, and I feel really good about the lineup that we have. So be sure to check that out. Also, go on social media. John of All Trades is on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Pinterest, all at J-O-A-T-Pod. Those are all great ways to stay up to date on the podcast and all the interviews that I do. So, and we kick it off this week with Jeff Grace, the writer and director of Folk Hero and Funny Guy. We talk about all things indie filmmaking. His episode starts right now. My flight got canceled from Delta, and they're rebooking my flight. So You're flying Delta out of Denver? They canceled the flight and sent me a text saying, your flight has been canceled. We have rebooked you on a flight tomorrow at 10, 8, 10 20 a.m. I was like, really? Yeah, just, well, thanks a pant load. Just stay another day, if you think. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, getting it all figured out, huh? Yeah. But Fest has been good for you? Yeah, the uh, Denver Film Festival is a festival I've uh, always wanted to play. I've had some films in the past. This is the first one that's been programmed. And... Um, yeah, just a really great team here. Um, yeah. you know, Britta and Matt and uh, Jenny Bloom and all those guys are uh, And my guys Neil. And Neil, well, Neil and Hannah. Terrific. We did a, a an educational workshop for some high school students yesterday with him. Nice. Um, How was that? Alex Karpovsky, um the star of the film. Uh it was great. I mean, the kids uh, you know, they're way ahead of me when I was that age. Yeah. Uh you know, I was a polyecon major and didn't really jump into this business until I was in my 30s, so Wow. Okay. A little late career change there. So we're talking with Jeff Grace, the writer and director of Folk Hero and Funny Guy, which uh, premiered at Tribeca. Is that right? Yeah. So what month was that? How long is how long have you been doing this? Now? That was in April. Okay. So we then since played a bunch of festivals uh, over the summer and and now. So we played IFF Boston, nice. Seattle Film Festival, Maui. Um, Tallgrass, Traverse City, which is Michael Moore's film festival in yeah. Michigan. Uh, I know Traverse City. My uncle lives up in uh, Boyne City, which is about an hour north of there. It's yeah, it's beautiful. It's, I mean, honestly, it was one of the biggest surprises. It's like a yeah. beach, it's this beautiful beach down in the middle of Michigan. And um, we're after this, we, we you know obviously here in Denver, we're going to play Napa Valley Film Festival nice. and uh, Key West Film Festival. And I'm sure I'm missing a couple on the way there, but uh, it's been a good run. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's fantastic, man. Do you ever get burned out, like going to that many festivals, talking about the film over and over again? Yeah, I mean, it is a little repetitive, and um, you know, it's one of these things you put you care, care so much about this film. It's the first film I've directed yeah. and written. Um, what it is is that the festivals are all just so close together. So there's a ton in the spring and a ton in the fall, and the summer's pretty light. So right now, there's just like you know, we've been going, going, going. Um, almost every weekend for the last wow. two months, I've had to be somewhere. Um, but <laughs> and, it's I mean, beyond, festivals right? are amazing, and you have a great time, and you meet great filmmakers. 
this is, you know, for our business, filmmaking, it's sort of the equivalent to what a convention would be for, sure. you know, the electronics convention in, in LA or Vegas. You know, this is our conventions. Yeah, any like any trade show. Yeah, it's a trade show. So this is uh, – the difference is these are all the kind of new upstart products, right? These are the films that aren't supported by the studio system, but these are all filmmakers that, you know, we probably would like to have a crack at taking on studio film or sure. making a TV series, you know, for Netflix or something like that. So that's, you know, I think a lot of these filmmakers are hoping to do next. You know, in the short film – filmmakers are often looking to make features. Right. Feature filmmakers are hoping to make something at a bigger level. You know, whether that's doing like an $8 million Fox Searchlight film or right. a big studio comedy, that's more my space that I'd like to get into or make, you know, try to bring some more quality back to the studio comedy space. Yeah. Um, but I also could see myself, I have a TV pilot that I'm working on right now that nice. um, I'm going to start shopping around. Wow. So, you know, when I was prepping for this interview, looking at your background, you know, you've, uh, you've acted, you've done stand up, you've done, uh, directing, writing, you've done all, all different numbers of things. And I compare it to what I do with this podcast. Yeah. Because with this, you know, I book the interview, conduct the interview, edit it in the back end, get it all cleaned up, do an intro, do an outro, write the blog post, promote it. There's a lot that goes into the work of actually creating the product that you want to create. For instance, Folk Your Own Funny Guy, right? Yeah. So you don't just sort of write a movie, film it, and that's it. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but one thing I'm always focused on and, and getting to the nut of sort of what I, I hope to achieve with this podcast is what is the thing, like what is the activity that you like most about this showbiz endeavor that you're in like like what is the what is the activity that that keeps drawing you back and you if you point to it you go this is what i love most well it's interesting your podcast is called the john of all trades and weirdly i've always i mean i've always identified with having a lot of interest i was one of these guys that was good at a lot of different things but maybe not like amazing at one thing which led me to be like what, (laughs) what what to do with my life and once i started directing i realized oh my god this is it I get to dabble in the acting. I get to dabble in the creative process. I get to nerd out with the camera stuff and the equipment and the digital effects. Um, and for me, it's the perfect career fit because I like doing all those different things. Right. But I wouldn't probably be happy just doing tech stuff. I probably, you know, I have been an actor and pay my bills as an actor for the last 10 years in LA, which is, a, you know, in itself, it's its own thing that I'm, I'm pretty proud of. But yeah, that's a victory. Um, yeah, it's a victory because I mean, when I left, I, I had a career in advertising before this at Leo Burnett in okay. Chicago, and I did a lot of uh, campaign work, and um, I was an account guy and then a copywriter. I, oh. I used to work for an agency too. I did, uh, I did some copywriting. I was mostly on client services though. Yeah, so you know, client services is the same thing as account. Yeah. So you know, but that's sort of a job that's sort of the same thing. You know, an account guy in an ad agency is really a producer in a film. Yeah. You're sort of pulling together all the creative elements and trying to move it forward. Not too different than what a brand manager does, too, I suspect. So, um, as a, you know, as a director, I had produced two films before this, and I knew that right off the bat on the first film, I was like, I needed to, I wanted to direct, but I didn't know what that meant or what right. that is. I didn't go to film school. So, I produced two films, one called The Scenesters, one called It's a Disaster, um, that have kind of gone through similar festival runs over the years. You know, I wanted to direct, and so this is my first time to direct, and I realized, yeah, this is what I like. So, I think. Producing is probably a little bit more bent towards the financials and the organizational. Sure. Directing is a little bit more bent towards the creative and uh, taste and judgment. Yeah, and, um, and aesthetic. Aesthetic, yeah. So it's really – it is the art form of it all. But I still think you know, in, in filmmaking it really is you – know, in some ways the DP is the true artist. You know, They're working mm-hmm. with the light. They're sculpting the image and making the frames look beautiful. You work with them on that. The actors are really – trying to inhabit this character to make it seem as naturalistic as possible. Yeah, come to life. Come to life. And to be able to do it seven times in a row and make it seem authentic <laughs> and heightened emotions and all that. And you have your set designers who are building sets who are, you know, ripping stuff up and tearing out walls and putting up wallpaper and, you know, making your right. sets look amazing. And, you know, so this, it's a really, I really like it a lot. I mean, in, in a way I liked advertising. I mean, it wasn't like I hated that career so much, but this is a more fun, creative version. So it feels a little more hands-on. Well, sure. And, you know, you're, you're trying to create an end product, but when you're doing advertising, that end product is always someone else's goal. Like you're servicing a master yes. in, a, in a way. I mean, you have to do that sort of for this. You want to be true to the vision that you have, especially when you wrote the film. But that's all coming from within you. So, you know, your decisions are not as predetermined as they are, say, in the advertising world. Yeah, in advertising, you're working for a client. And I think the frustration there is that you're often – your work can only be as good as your client is – 
creative. <laughs> so if you're working for craft salad dressing, you know that there's a, there's going to be a ceiling on that. <laughs> I was lucky. I had great clients. I, but yeah, I had client. My Altoids was my biggest client, and that was a really fun entrepreneurial brand. Yeah, and we, yeah, they have kind of a, kind of an off kilter uh, way about them too. Yeah, know? so that's cool. I mean, it was a, at the time it was the biggest. It was the most creative award winning account at our agency. We did a lot of innovative stuff with alternative media, with out of home. You know, we were the first advertisers to do rickshaws, smokestacks, <laughs> nice. um, and uh, it was a real great case study to work on. But yeah, so I think, but you know, that was because we had a cool brand and a cool client. You were able to do cool work, but more often than not, in advertising, you feel like you're battling your client. Oh yeah, and that's probably what it's, it's sort of like what it is to make a studio film. Hmm. But the director has a bit more. You know, almost indie film is the one space where you really are. If you, in the, at least in this case, my investors were not seeking creative oversight. I worked with a producer and we're collaborating together to make a product. Yeah, yeah. But even on a studio film, there's a little bit, there can be a little bit more of a loggerheads between the studio executives and you, the director. Sure. And it's, you know, really just commensurate with the, the money, right? The more, the, the more money, the more risk aversion that needs to be in place. Right. Or I don't know if it needs to be in place, but that's the philosophy that <laughs> happens. So something interesting that you said, um, and I did a, an episode with uh, with a guy who works for an agency that cuts together film trailers for like Sony, and so he does like thirty second TV spots, and so he'll you know he'll be looking uh, at footage before anyone else, trying to figure out what's going to make a good trailer, things like that. Um, you said the director of photography was the true artist on the film, right? As a director, are you more focused on sort of creating it in camera or are you better like behind the scenes after it's shot, cutting it together? Like what's your comfort level there? Well, I think my first film, I think, I think your fear as a director in your first film is that you, you're going to come back to edit the film and you didn't shoot stuff you needed <laughs> or you're lacking footage or you're lacking continuity or, so I think, for this first film, I probably was guilty a little bit. We shot two cameras. Uh-huh. So I was probably a little guilty of just, just kind of trying to cover everything. Yeah. And I was a little afraid to make as many decisions in camera, if you will, as you put it. You know, like some filmmakers, right? They'll just be like, I want to shoot the scene as a one and that's it. I was always a little afraid that that gave me a little few, that gave me too few options in the edit. Sure. Um, but now having edited a film, I know I'd have a lot more confidence to just, you know what? We only need to shoot this in a medium and then we can move on. I don't need it both ways. Yeah. Um, you learn a lot about shooting two cameras versus one camera because hmm. equipment's so inexpensive these days. <laughs> you can shoot two cameras pretty easily, but that doesn't always help you because that's two monitors, that's two images to keep. A, you know, it's almost yeah. sometimes better to like, you know, it's like the, in the airplane industry, they used to have, all the jumbo jets used to have four four engines, right? But they actually found that maintaining four engines was more risky than just maintaining <laughs> two. And I think that's true with filmmaking sometimes that if you just have one camera, one frame, well, yeah. then you're making sure you're getting one thing that you truly love. As opposed to just like kind of hosing it down. They say the term is hosing it down. Right. Um, but you're just like sort of covering everything and we'll find it later, which isn't a bad philosophy. On this film, we had not almost any money and we, we had 30 to 40 locations over the course of 22 days. So we were always behind. And I think in that case, sometimes you just cover it and you know, you can get something in the edit. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense because I mean, two things strike me on this. You know, you talked about, uh, you know, financing, uh, this film was Kickstarter, right? Yeah. But not entirely, right? No, the, just the first chunk. So we raised 50000 okay. on Kickstarter, which was awesome. It was the first time I did that. It might be the last time I do that. Really? I think, well, I just think it's – I wouldn't do it for another film. If okay. I had some other product or if I was to invent something, um, right. I think you can go that well one time, okay. which is you're basically asking your friends and your family, like, hey, help me out, be a part of this. And people were so generous. Um, we had over 500 supporters. Nice. Um, we raised $50,000. And those people are really engaged with the film. I think it helped us articulate our vision. And I think by raising that money, it made investors feel like, all right, we have our stuff together. Um, we also had to make a, we made a really funny video that articulated our vision. Nice. I think that's a nice asset to have. It sort of forced us to be a little bit better at presenting our, our product than maybe we otherwise would have been. Hmm. So I think it was a good experience for that. And obviously the whole point of Kickstarter is it gives you that seed money you need to hire a lawyer, to hmm. open your LLC, all these things that you would have to like put on a credit card or the right get insured yeah i mean because most films you don't want to start spending investor money until you're going to shoot the film okay that um, makes sense 
But I mean, there's all this setup work and this, I mean, this is something that, that always fascinates me. I was talking to a dentist on this show one time mm. and he started talking about the tax policies in the 1970s, which is why he couldn't buy a building. And I'm like, Oh my God, you're a dentist and you have to buy a freaking building. Like you don't go to dental school and no one teaches you like about right. real estate law. Right. I mean, as a, as a filmmaker, you're probably not, at least as you go into it, you're probably not thinking about insurance and lawyers and things like that and getting well, I started. Could, I could tell you like the first uh, – probably the biggest note of caution to like new filmmakers and probably anyone in the new business. I imagine it's the same thing if you open a restaurant. There's just so many deals that you can make that are not as good as you could make. Mm. There's so many points of failure. There's so many – I'm sure if you open a restaurant, right, like maybe understanding – your lease or understanding your lease terms or because the enthusiasm, right, is like, let's just start making pizzas and right. selling them. But all the other things that come into it, safety codes, inspections, dealing with, um, uh, you know, the OSHA, health department, health department, uh, dealing with a staff, right? All that yeah. stuff is, does, you know, not most people, most people don't have a skill set that's great at 90 different things. Right. Um, so it can be overwhelming. I think a lot of businesses fail from that being that overwhelm. And I think an indie film is a little bit of the same thing in that you have a business that's really challenging. It's much like opening a restaurant. Most restaurants fail. Most indie films fail. Mm. So you – and the reason that a lot of them and, fail – And when you say fail, do you mean like not make its money back? Or? Not make their money back. Okay, yeah. I don't mean they fail creatively, but I think that they, yeah, mo- more indie films than not – probably 90% of indie films will not make their money back. Mm. 10% will, and those 10% will make a lot of money back okay. theoretically. Or some will break even. But um, um, it's probably like developing an app. For yeah. the iPhone, right? Ninety percent probably fail. That ten percent that do well are like you know they could become overnight millionaires. Um, I don't know if film quite has that upside, but mm-hmm. for, you know for the careers of the people involved and for your investors, they might get two or three times their money back. Most investors in a film are investing for the fun and excitement of <laughs> you know coming to set, going to film festivals, and having that experience. Is it almost like the vanity aspect? I think so. I mean, I think I think just like you know like much like. In the history of time, people have always commissioned art. You know, we're right here in the McNichols Center. Yeah, you have all this beautiful artwork around here. I mean, there's no economic benefit. I mean, I guess there's no direct economic benefit. No, it's just it's long term and it's very uh, hard to pin down. But like, if you build a bicycle statue out front of a building, yeah. someone probably spent a hundred thousand dollars and give that to an artist. They're not immediately going to find return on investment. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess I never thought of it that way. But art and like, art is almost uh, a any piece of art on its own is a small contribution to an overall feel of like a city or a building yeah, or right. it's, it's, and, it's, I mean, at some crude term, it's like branding, right? Do you want to be the cool city? Yeah. Or do you want to be, uh, you know, like do you want to be a shitberg? You know? <laughs> <laughs> St. Petersburg, Florida. I mean, I haven't been to those cities, so I shouldn't say that, but like, <laughs> I mean, Denver's really working hard to be like, let's be a cool progressive city. Yeah, let's, exactly. let's make sure that we're enticing artists to be here. Um, that was, this is my first time I've been here in a long time, but, just spending the weekend here, I've gotten a sense that Denver's making art a priority. Well, it's funny. We're, we're facing the election uh, coming up in like two days. We were recording this on a Sunday. And one of the questions, it's a local issue. I mean, I don't want to talk national politics at all. Sure. But a local issue is the uh, whether or not to renew, uh, I think it's a small sales tax on a scientific and cultural facilities district. And so it's Denver's one of the only cities that actually has that. And as a result, uh, our artistic community has just boomed and done really well. Like our symphony and our theater, everything's doing really great. You have to encourage – if you don't – I mean because there is no um, – art is not one of those things where there's – there is a value to it. Right. It's just harder to pinpoint than it is if you like a build Walmart a factory. or something. Yeah. If you put a Walmart in a certain area – if you put a Starbucks in a certain area, you know that that's going to help the property values and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and it, no one has that mathematical formula for like if I put a few statues here <laughs> and if I – and we make a priority and we make zoning laws that encourage interesting architecture. Right. That has a lot of long-term value. If you live in a neighborhood that makes those things a priority, your yeah. property will be worth more money. It's just still – we haven't got as sophisticated as like valuing that um, contribution of art. Yeah, no, I mean, I, your your point is well taken. Uh, something else I wanted to talk about, when you're working on an indie film, on a budget like this, it seems like the toughest kind of movie to make, outside of maybe like tentpole comic book movie, which you know right. you wouldn't attempt in, in this type of thing, but is a road movie, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you mentioned all the setups and all the locations that you have. Doing that on a budget has got to be challenging. How do you work around that? I think every film has its challenges, but uh, no doubt, my last film I produced was "It's a Disaster." Mm-hmm. It was shot in one one house, 
for the whole time. We shot literally on, at, we never left one location. Wow. We were there for three weeks, um, cast and crew hung out in a house next door. Super easy in that, in that regards. We just had to just get through the shoot shots within the house. Now the challenge of a film like that is how do you shoot inside of a house and keep it interesting visually and, yeah. you know, and, and there are other, other challenges, but, this was the opposite. This was, all right, we have to, usually we're changing locations once a day. Mm-hmm. We had a, pl- a lot of days where you have a company move twice. Oh my gosh. Which means you're like going from an ice skating rink to a bar location and then ending up in the parking lot of a hotel. <laughs> right. So those days are exhausting. And those are the days where you often refer to the morning as yesterday. Cause you're like, you remember yesterday? <laughs> and, like, and you have to be able to tell people, no, that was today. Yeah, that was earlier today. Because your brain is just like, it's yeah. so un- unable to process like getting up at six in the morning. And you're still shooting at midnight and yeah. uh, paying everyone overtime. And so, I mean, I you know, is it basically just turn and burn? Then I, are you running and gunning as quick as you can when you have that many different setups? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're doing is, I mean, we you you plan as much as you possibly can with your your DP, you storyboard, your shot list, and you really know what you're going to get. I, I'd often storyboard out in the morning. I'd have storyboards that I made before we started shooting, but once you're at the location, I'd sort of adjust those storyboards. Figure out shot lists, work with your AD to kind of make it happen. Yeah. And then when you bring your cast in, they're going to have ideas about blocking, about where they're going to stand and where they want to be. And that's part of that artistic process. So, you know, usually in the morning, first thing you do is you get your actors before they even go to makeup. You're like, hey guys, let's walk through this scene and they'll kind of act it out a little bit. And, you know, a lot of times the actors will feel like, hey, why am I standing? Why am I standing by this door and not leaving if I'm saying I want to leave? Right. You're like, okay, all right, we need to put something in your way. So uh, then you work with the – once the cast kind of feels like they're in a groove blocking-wise, you bring in the camera team. They now start to figure out where to put the cameras. You talk to your sound guy about where you can put mm-hmm. the boom so that it's not in the way. And then you more rehearse one more time for camera, send your, your actors in for makeup, and then your camera team will start – kind of putting up the lights wow and uh almost very fast usually an hour after that you're shooting <laughs> if all goes well yeah i mean one thing uh while i was watching the film let's start talking about the film because sure. uh because i really liked it got a screener for it uh your producer does this thing where your name is sort of burned in to he's the... trying to scare you from leaking it uh clearly <laughs> <laughs> actually that makes sense i couldn't figure out why because i was watching it after like i have two two girls who are under two so it was after they went to bed and I was just sitting there alone in my house staring at my name like imprinted on this movie and I go kind of strange I'd never had that before but felt very personalized which was nice. Well we don't send out a lot of screeners and we're really protective about our our material. We at my last film leaked oh, um, sucks. like a month before it was released and uh Unfortunately, that was our most, our busiest day. If you look at our IMDb, mm. and it tracks the film's interest level, you know, how much web traffic it's getting. Right, yeah. And the biggest day for web traffic was the day we leaked on BitTorrent. So, God, that, blows that felt up. like we left a lot of money on the table there. So, um, piracy continues to be a big problem for the industry. So, you know who's leaking it then? Like, well, we don't really know who leaked it. No, but no, but I mean, with this, with this, with this, we would know. Yeah. Um, so that's why, and we, that, this is, and so what we have to do for, we, I literally go into Final Cut, I make a new, I put someone's name on there, yeah. I have to output it, and then we upload it to Vimeo. So, wow. Everyone's got a unique, um, a unique burn in, and a unique, uh, so, I mean, and it's not like people are, just to, just to help people be a little more conscious about, sure. um, you know, just make sure this thing doesn't leak, get, give a little bit of fear of God in people, um, <laughs> and if there were any bad actors that were to stumble across, or if there was anyone, it would just make them think twice, you know? Sure, yeah. Um, and so you can't prevent piracy, but it's uh, an effort we put in to help prevent it. It, it. For whatever reason, that didn't occur to me, probably because I have two kids under two and they're melting my brain. <laughs> but uh, but that makes great sense. And I, more power to you on that because I, I think this leaking culture um, where people don't pay for music and people don't pay for art is, is really destructive. And yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean... It's, um, I mean, I get the impulse. Like after getting dicked over by the record companies, like it, especially if you grew up in the '80s and '90s, where CDs existed for like 15 years and the cost never came down. Well, they CDs were. How about this? CDs cost more than cassette tapes. Yet cassette tapes cost three dollars to make, and CDs were like fifty cents to make. <laughs> so they charge a premium for a product that actually right. costs less to make. It was greed, you know. So I, I but think- I get it, and I mean, you know, so I mean that happened. And the the record companies really took it in the ass, which they probably deserve to. But you were hurting so many artists in the process. I don't know. I mean, you just you know, the money people figure out a way to make money from it. I do think piracy is something that needs to be addressed. I don't think I don't think it's right that 
I think people should pay something for a product. There might be business models where, it may, like, you know, the advertising model. I think it's you know, like maybe if people were willing to watch advertisements in, in exchange for content, that's something. Um, but I do think people have to pay for content, and Netflix has proven that if you make it a reasonable price, mm-hmm. uh, nine dollars a month, and you give people a lot of great content, that seems to be a fair proposition to people. Most people are willing to pay for their Netflix account. No, I agree. Um, I pay for premium Pandora too. Yeah, yeah. Because if you make the product, you know, if you get people in, involved, I same thing with me and Spotify. Yeah, I pay the extra nine dollars a month to have it on my iPhone and uh, f- whatever the a few other features are. And if you and if you're willing to sit through commercials and be inconvenienced, then you don't have to pay for that. Right. Um, but yeah, I do think the government should figure. I should. I personally think that the government or the is it the RAAAC, whoever is the copyright protection authority. Oh yeah. They get uncomfortable. They get uncomfortable going after you know moms and dads and kids that are pirating. But I think if you don't do that in some sort of smart way, I don't think people should have to pay a two hundred fifty thousand dollar fine. No. But I think you maybe you have to say, listen, the first time this happens, you're going to get charged a thousand bucks. Yeah. The second time you get char- this happens, you're going to get charged five thousand, and the third time we're going to really throw the book at you. Yeah, you're, gonna, you're you may do some time. Or- and it's getting it's getting harder to pirate. I mean, you know, sometimes in our business we do have to like sometimes I have to bit torn a movie because I'm building a mood reel for a project and I need some movie that's not even available to, for purchase. Oh wow. Um, or because the D, the digital rights management's I, it's too hard to rip or whatever. So <laughs> I use it expediently, but I don't. It's not like I'm using it more for fair use. Um, yeah, and that's, it's not nefarious purposes that you're describing. There. But it's not. That I'm just. I'm not trying to avoid paying for something. But it's like I literally can't watch this otherwise. Yeah. Um, but even now, I just noticed that it's it's not as easy to find torrents. At least I, for this old man, um, <laughs> I'm not a 22 year old whiz kid anymore. Um, so I don't know where maybe there's places you can do it. But it, but it has developed a culture of of people thinking that content should be free. Yeah, I, it's kind of a weird thing to me. Okay, so in uh, in folk hero and funny guy, you've brought up your background. You you know your former stand up. Mm-hmm. Your and I'm sure this is a very prosaic question. You've gotten a lot. You used to work in advertising. How much of and and I know that um, a lot of this is based on your friendship with Adam Ezra. How much of the film is autobiographical? How much are you like Paul? How much is is Adam? You know, like Jay. Yeah, I mean, I think um, so. Adam Ezra is a musician in the East Coast who's very. Uh, has had a real successful career. Um, we've been friends since we were living in Chicago when I was working in advertising. And I had just started moonlighting, doing like a little like Second City classes and Improv Olympic. Right. But it was more of a hobby at that time. And then um, at that time, he was full in, committed to being a musician, you know, doing the open mic thing and um, was having a lot of success early on. And we've kept in touch over the years. And at one point over a couple of beers, he mentioned like, oh, maybe we should go on tour sometime. You could open up for me as a comedian. You know, I could play, you know, play after you. And I kind of laughed it off because it's not music, comedy before music never really works too well. Um, I was at a Less Than Jake show one time where one of their supporting bands, someone in, in the band's family died. And Less Than Jake goes, all right, look, we could have just said we're not having anyone here. They opened the phone book and hired a, uh, a magician. And so the magician played beforehand. The crowd was remarkably polite to him. But it was almost like politeness. Now, please get the fuck off the stage so we can get back to punk rock. Music is—I mean, music is something you can experience and enjoy and talk to your friends, and it doesn't require your full attention. But you can't—you can't like uh, something about comedy and magic requires you to like pay attention, be respectful, be quiet. Right. Um, that's just not a good mix. So, uh, um, and then Adam has a song called. Uh, a desperate plea from the heart of a shithead, which is a funny story about his story in the middle of the song about how he goes to this uh, hometown of a girl he's in love with yeah. um, to kind of tell her that he thinks she's the one. And he sort of built a fake tour around it yeah. a little bit. And I sort of exaggerated elements of that to make this story. But 100%, I mean, the autobiographical part is, you know, I was a guy working in advertising, debating whether to go into the entertainment world. And when I went into the entertainment world, you know, I never made as much, I've never to this day, I think one or two years maybe, but, you know, it's now been 10 years since I worked in advertising. I've only, like, one or two years made as much money as I did in advertising <laughs> since I left. So monetarily, it was a decision that I've definitely not made as much money, but it's changing careers, and I'm trying to – it's one of the most competitive careers there is. Yeah, oh, yeah. So I knew I'd be taking a step back, but, I, you know, I love what I'm doing, and um, but it's never without its self-doubt, right? You're, you know, you see your right. friends getting married, having kids. For me, it's felt a little bit like that it was a little bit less of a priority right away because mm. – um, I wanted to ma- really focus on getting this career off the ground, but um, so it leads to a lot of self doubt and second guessing, and that's what the movie's about. Paul's debating whether or not he wants to go back to the corporate gig. Yeah, and Adam, 
you know, or Jason Black in the movie is the guy who's like, it's worked out for from the day one and he's, right. he's had success. So he doesn't get why you would have those doubts. You know, he's just like, just keep going for it. Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> and there's a, so much of artistic success is luck. You know, there's yeah. a lot of, um, I do think if you're really good, it'll work out for you at some point. Sure. Um, but there are a lot of breaks that go people's ways that can really turn your career into something totally economically sustainable. You know, if you stumble into, uh, you know, like I think Colin Trevorrow is a talented filmmaker and a ta- and his, and his writing partner, his name escapes me right now. Super talented guy. They made safety not guaranteed, but oh, yeah. I think there was a few, you know, I think, um, one of the actors in their film had a connection with Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg watched the movie right around when they, when, um, Brad Bird was walking, uh, had to go do another movie and couldn't do Jurassic. Boom. In comes Colin. Just right time, right place. Right. Um, so you got to do the work to kind of get yourself lucky, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, luck, it, luck comes more and more the harder you work. Yeah. I mean, yeah. luck comes easier, like the, the more effort you're willing to put into it. Your, your description of, uh, of Jason in the movie, I think is so good because, and I, I identify a lot with the, uh, with the Paul character because, and the folks who listen to the show regularly are going to be tired of hearing about <laughs> it. But a year and a half ago, I left my corporate gig and I branched out on my own. I'm consulting on my own. Like I didn't go into full on like art, uh, or entertainment, but you know, I got to focus on this podcast more. I got to do more and more stuff. I, I set the clients I want to work with. To an extent, I mean, who's willing to pay you? Obviously, you're not always. But you're growing. You're growing something that's, you know, in five years' time could be a big business. Exactly, and you know, it's it's one of those things where there's a lot of self doubt every day. I mean, it's a roller coaster, right? I mean, I'm sure you get that. Where one day you're riding high, you're going, "Man, I'm I kick ass at this. This is great. This is the life I always wanted to live." The next day, you're like, "I am such a fraud. I am like I." They're they're gonna haul me away, and I'm gonna end up on the street with a fucking cup in my hand. Well, this in L.A. You see these characters walking around. There's there's a guy in L.A. that used to um, he made a movie 15 years ago, and he's still selling copies of it out of the trunk of his car. <laughs> Jesus, and it's not a good movie. So <laughs> there's always a fear. I think every actor, every artist has this fear. One day is like, wait, am I that delusional guy? Am yeah. I the guy that doesn't have the talent, and I'm just plugging away, and I'm gonna be the sad artist guy? He's like living in a you know, one bedroom the rest of my life. So like, but, but, I, but, but I that think, feeds you like in a, in a, I think in a positive way, you know, like, well, once you lose that too, I mean, once the problem is once you get successful, you actually never have that. You'll never go back to that phase of working against getting like, right. Right now you're grinding to get better. Um, but right now, let's say the podcast got a sponsorship for a million bucks a year. Yeah. Would you work as hard to make this the best thing you may, may possibly could? <laughs> Maybe not. Because right now you're forced to go, con- you're forced to constantly explore. How can I make this better? What's my delivery like? My interview style? What's the proper length of this thing? So you're kind of perfecting it to make right. it the best thing you can be. Certainly, as an actor, that happens. I, I have actually met with a lot of actors over the years. I don't think I'm speaking out term, but Heather Morris was an actress who um, she was a dancer on Glee. Uh, they thought she was kind of funny. They said, "Could you do a line one episode?" People loved it. Can yeah. you do another line this next episode? And then she was one of the you know most popular characters on that TV show. It ran for many many years. Right. Um, she has a massive following. She but she'd never been an actress before, so she went back out into the world to audition. She I think actually found it tough and realized and, and she's now mm-hmm. like you know when I was talking to her she's like yeah now I got an acting coach and all these other things. She's clearly got the talent. She was like you know lead character in a TV show. <laughs> right. She's great in my movie, but you forget that like when you skip that grinding process. Now she's got to do a little bit more of it now to kind of figure out, oh, yeah, what is it like to audition, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. So um, it happens. I think it happens a lot. It's nice to get that early break, but sometimes you're gonna have to, you're gonna eventually have to do that grind at some point. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, everyone's got to take at bats. You know, you you think I I was liking it to baseball. You can get up there and you know you can crush the first ten games of the year. It's a 162 game season. Yep. It's how long a career. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna slump. You're gonna hit low points, and you know how do you grind out of that? Is is almost sort of what you're describing. Yeah. Uh, one of the things in the film that was uh, something that I paid attention to because I got both my degrees at Colorado State University, okay. Fort Collins, Colorado. Mm-hmm. There's new Belgium stuff all over the film. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I went to Colorado College. Oh no shit. So I know the new Belgium. Fat Tire was like the original. Back then we called them microbrews. Yep, I now remember. Now we call them craft beers. I, I drank it almost uh, for a dollar, a dollar each every night uh, up in Fort Collins. Yeah, because that's where the brewery is, right? Yeah. 
Um, but that, I mean, that's just also shows to show you that like, that's a little brand that when I was in Colorado, it was only available in Colorado. Now yeah. it's a national brand. Um, so that it was not really any doing on my own other than they just sort of, when we were looking at sponsors for the film, they just sort of popped up. Nice. Okay. So I, that was one of those things where, so they're, are they financially part of the film then too? No, it's just like a lot of these beer companies will give you free product oh, nice. in exchange, you know, which is helpful for props and filling up, making bars look like they're half full shelves of alcohol and stuff. Okay. And then of course getting your, your cast and crew drunk on the weekends. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> that helps keep morale up, right? Yeah. It helps with the morale. Well, and, uh, I mean, Alex or, you know, Paul in his room has like, when I was looking at it, I'm like, is that, that looks like the new Belgium bike. Like he's, he's got, yeah, he's yeah. got the thing hanging in his room and I go, that's cool. I wonder if that's intentional. Then, uh, Wyatt Russell shows up, gets a fat tire out of the fridge and I go, I know this bottle. Well, Hannah Stoddard was my, uh, production designer and she reached out to all these companies and I think I mentioned I liked the fat tire. I felt like kind of fit with like, uh, that jam bandy kind of vibe. And so for whatever reason that they, they were cool and they sent us a bunch of promotional materials and yeah. stuff to put on walls. And so, yeah, I mean, smart, smart for them. They get free advertising in a movie. Totally. One of the things I liked most about this movie is it's got a very sort of lived in feel. As soon as we're there, I'm like, okay, I know, like, I know how this feels. You know, I, I'm not from, I, I don't live on the East Coast or anything, but I, I felt like I, I got a good sense of the characters and the friendship between Alex Karpovsky and Wyatt Russell. Uh, did those guys, did they know each other beforehand well or? Well, I knew that I wanted to rehearse a lot because I wanted, it's hard to replicate a lifelong friendship. Sure. Um, and also when you're casting, you're trying to figure out, can these get, these two seem like two dudes that will get along. Yeah. Um, Alex is a really good guy. He was, you know, the first guy we cast. You know, I sort of reached out to him directly. I kind of met him a few times through friends. And so I knew who he, what he was about. And, and then casting Wyatt, Wyatt's role was really hard because we wanted to get, we wanted it both for Wyatt, uh, and the role that Meredith played, um, Jason and Bryn. We want, I wanted yeah. actors that could play the music live in the film. So they had to be able to sing, play guitar, that's, and then act. That's them? Yeah, that's them playing. In the They're movie. exceptional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they and they uh, they worked with Adam. Uh, Adam wrote most of the music in the film, but Meredith's uh, most of Meredith's music is her own. She wrote one of the songs with uh, Adam uh, collaboratively, and then uh, the Jason Black character. Most of the songs are Adams, but Wyatt even wrote a couple songs that are <laughs> in the film as well. Super talented guys. Neither of them are full time musicians. Wow. So that was. I mean, they just put so much hard work into to finding those roles and to nailing those performances. But, uh, yeah, so I, it was a hard search because it was like, you know, the, the pool of actors that could strike this kind of comedy, dramedy chord, could play music and sing. It's like 10 dudes on earth. <laughs> um, and why it was someone that I really wanted early on. Sure. He was an up and coming actor. And this kind of film, this kind of budget, you're kind of looking for someone that's like, you're hoping is going to ha- is going to pop. On the ascent. Yeah. yeah. And, um, finally he had a pro- opening in his schedule. It was, it fit with ours. I met him for, uh, um, me and Ryland, my producer, met him for lunch one day. And I think within five seconds, I knew he was the guy. He was just yeah. super warm, friendly. I didn't even read him for the role. I, I just knew he would be the guy. Wow. And he was into it. Yeah. He he liked it. Um, you know, he actually had a um, – let this fire truck pass here. Um, can we pause real quick? Sure. So, so yeah, the fire truck just passed there. I couldn't, I couldn't, it was a hard time hearing you. Um <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so Wyatt was just a guy that, like, um, you know, I think had a real warm sensibility. He's got that kind of Jeff Bridges, Matthew McConaughey can kind of. He's got a leading man look, but he's got he can kind of. He has a, a, a chill, a relaxedness about him that. Yeah. For a lot of leading men in Hollywood, you know, they're pretty intense dudes, or they're, you know, male modely types, and right. uh, it's sometimes hard to find guys that are that can play that kind of more laid back, kickback role, and that, and that's so. Um, I, I felt really super fortunate with the casting. Same with Meredith Hagner, who um, I think even had less of a profile than, than Wyatt at the time. She'd been on some soap operas as a kid and then was on a show called Men at Work. Yeah. Um, but I had only the only thing I'd seen her do that really fit with our film was this, this like small little role with Jeremy Renner on Louie. She was amazing in it. Wow. And um, so she um, – I like the way you wrote her too. Because yeah, that, a lot of that was her helping me. I mean, a lot of that was me working with her too to make that character not just your standard, uh, you know, the chick in the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to make, I want to give that character her own like kind of real estate. To She's own. got more agency. Yeah, like, the, the agency is a word we used a lot actually. So yeah, yeah, which is accurate because you know, in a in a film like that or in in a film like this where you have the the focus is two dudes, the woman is almost a prop of conflict. 
in a lot of times. In this case, I didn't feel like that because, you know, she takes action. She, you know, she's willing to stand up for herself. She'll talk shit back to Paul yeah. and Jason. And it, it's, you know, without giving away too much, she has a really, really nice moment um, towards the end where I go, fuck yeah. Like, yeah, where you're fully on her side, too. Well, that's the thing. We want to turn that on its head, right? She sort of is. There's a sort of like we wanted her to kind of have the speech for all prop actresses, I guess, if you, <laughs> as, as you said. Right. Um, to kind of give her that that moment to be like, uh, I'm not just a character in your movie here, <laughs> right. you know, in so many words. So, um, yeah. And I mean, so much of that is Meredith Hagner and just uh, uh, wonderful actress. She's going to have, a, a, I think, a big this, this series coming out on TBS called Search Party. She's one of the four leads in and she's oh, nice. All right. very funny and, and uh, real warm heart and just yeah. uh, musically talented. Uh, I'm, I've you know really remained friends with all the cast too afterwards. So that's, that's been cool. a nice perk. Uh, I saw Wyatt Russell the first time as I'm sure a lot of people did in 22 Jump Street. Yeah. And he's a force of nature in that movie. I mean, his, his portrayal of Zook is fantastic. Yeah. I cast him like a week or two before that movie came out. And I was like, I remember going to the theater opening night being like, I hope he's good. <laughs> You know, just because it would be funny if he just was like, a tr- you know, I just had no reason to be like, I hope he's funny in this movie. I hope he's good in this movie because <laughs> right? what if he's a, what if he's a train wreck? Um, no, but he's just, I mean, one thing about it, he, you know, he's he's his his family obviously is, um, you know, his dad and his mom are both huge actors. Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn, his sisters, yeah. Kate Hudson. So weirdly, like he was a hockey player all his life. He wasn't an actor, but that uh, I think so much of the good habits of 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 being being an actor is not about trying as hard as you possibly can. It's actually about learning how to be relaxed and be yourself in front of the camera. Yeah. And why I just I, I think it just through osmosis had absorbed some of that so much of that through his family. And I think also because he grew up a hockey player and not an actor, he he had an identity onto himself. He was a guy who proven himself was a pro hockey player in Europe and Canada. Wow. So when he finally entered the business, I think he had you know he he was his own guy. He had a good sense of self at that point. Right? Yeah. I mean. Which is really good. So, okay, I know you got to catch a flight uh, coming up here soon. One thing you hear is you spend your entire life up to that point writing and creating your first movie. Yeah. Right? So when it comes to what's next after this, you know, you, you mentioned you have designs on potentially directing a studio comedy. What's next in terms of creation for you? Um, well, I, I'm finishing up a, pilot, a TV pilot right now that would be ideally for, like, Netflix or FX or – um, it's Amazon sort of a, or something. Amazon, yeah. It's sort of a modern day sex comedy. Um, and it's about a guy who tries to, who, who falls in love with a girl who's self identifies as being polyamorous. Hmm. And he tries to like open up his sexual lifestyle to, 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 it's sort of a love story about a guy who tries to change it, change the way he believes about sex and love. And, uh, and ultimately it's a tool to sort of explore all the things that are changing modern love, right? The, the, yeah. the dating apps making it dating seem more like a, a pool of inventory. You know, uh, <laughs> when I was dating back in the day, you'd hope to meet a girl at a bar. Yeah. You know, now you can swipe through a hundred girls a day, you know, yeah. if, and, uh, and same for the girls, the guys, right? So it creates this sort of, uh, dilemma of choice. Um, I think it also makes people more, I think, I think it's, I don't think we even know how it's changing romance. But that's what I want to explore in this series. And uh, I think polyamory is a provocative uh, sort of conversation starter to sort of go into modern-day romance. And there are very few things that I would say are sort of taboo mm-hmm. in our culture these days. Polyamory is probably still one of them. Yeah, I mean, it's taboo, and it's been tried before, too. And I think what I really want to emphasize is this is a guy who's reluctantly trying it. He's a right. guy that was divorced. You know, I think one thing that all married people go through is that tends to be tends to be that if you charted the line of like our satisfying sex life tends to go down right you know and uh you have to work to keep it up or maintain it and so i do think sometimes people now that we're seeing that like airbnb is the new hotel lyft is the new taxi i think our culture is i think polyamory is growing um at least in california as a thing i'm hearing about (laughs) because i think people are wondering like is there do you have to have one sexual partner your whole life can you make that work i think i think most of us feel like that's opening up a can of worms that's more trouble than it's worth. Mm. But I think it's a fun topic to explore. And I think having a character that character that's reluctantly trying to make this work, it connects it to like how most of the audience will watch it feeling. Well, I think to your point, there's a lot of tillable earth there. Like yeah. there's a lot of areas for exploration and comedy and stuff that hasn't been done. And I'll tell you, 
you know, it especially in this day and age where you tend to find not necessarily a show, not necessarily, you know, a set of movies or sequels, but for me, if I can latch onto a sensibility, you know, for instance, like Michael Schur, who did Parks and Rec and yeah. Brooklyn Nine Nine and The Good Place now, I'll watch almost anything that, that he's done. Yeah. This movie, Folk Hero and Funny Guy, was my first exposure to you. But the vibe I got from it, there was there's a warmth about the movie. There's there's a humor. There's sort of a just something that I identified with immediately. I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. You know, uh, I, I don't think I, I'm not a cynical dude, um, so I want to approach approach a sort of cynical, cynical topic yeah. and hopefully give it a little warmth and heart. Sure, so yeah. uh, we'll see if it works or not. I'm also working on a, a studio comedy, a, a, guy, a kind of a hangoverish movie. We'll see if it goes, but. Uh, yeah, super nice talking to you, man, and uh, like what you're doing here. Yeah, best, absolutely, man. At before we go, where can we find Folk Hero and Funny Guy? Where can we find you? Uh, give us some plugs. Uh, let's, uh, let's hear it. Social media, wherever. Uh, we are at uh, at f h f g. Is that right, Folk Hero Funny Guy? <laughs> f h f g film on Twitter okay. and Instagram. We're on Folk Hero and Funny Guy. You can just search and find us on Facebook. Uh, Folk Hero and Funny Guy. Is the name of our website. That might be a good place to start too there. Nice. But, you know, Google it. You'll find it. Um, I'll link to all of it in the companion blog um, piece. So, uh, thanks so much. Yeah, we don't, we are just fi- fi- ironing out our distribution deal. Actually, some distributors were at the festival here we nice. met with yesterday. So that might be something to announce soon. Um, fingers crossed. Cool. And when might we see that get distributed potentially? I'm hoping, uh, maybe, I think we're all hoping that sometime like after the Academy Awards film. So sometime okay. in the early spring of next year. Nice, man. All right. Well, Jeff Grace, this was an enormous pleasure. And John, conti- nice to meet you. Continued success to you, brother. Thanks. You too. Appreciate it. And we bring this week's episode with Jeff Grace to a close. Thank you for kicking us off so well for Denver Film Fest 39. We have a great slate of episodes. And I could not have asked for a better way to kick it off. So thank you, Jeff Grace. Much success to you. And I hope Folk Hero and Funny Guy does great things for you. It was a terrific movie. I enjoyed the hell out of it. And it was a pleasure getting to talk to you. A couple more plugs before we get out of here. This week's episode, as every week's episode, is brought to you by 4 Degrees. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. They're the official sponsor of the John of All Trades podcast. And they are wonderful at getting your message, your product, whatever it is you need to be seen by the communities who need to see them on the networks on which they operate. That sounds a little vague, but what I'm talking about is digital media advertising and digital media strategy. Four Degrees is unparalleled in this space. Hit them up if you need to get in touch with the people who need to see your product, your campaign, your candidate, whatever it is. They are the best at it. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. John of All Trades Podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check us out on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Got three more episodes coming from the Denver Film Festival. Two next week, one the week after. It's high times around here. It's election season. It's Denver Film Fest season. We don't rest. We don't stop. I'm recording this late at night. You have no idea. I'm so wired. I'm never going to go to sleep. Until we see you next week, say goodnight, Tracy. That's good, Johnny.